one of these days I get to preach on a family Sunday and finally use all my coffee soda illustrations, but not today. Not today. Not just today. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here on staff. It's great to be with you. It's good to be uh, with the church this morning. Amen. There it is. I did that for her during her announcement because she didn't even hear it. Isn't that so hurtful? Um, oh well, okay. Um, before I get going, uh, I want to add one other thing that was on your announcement sheet when you uh, were handed that when you came in. Uh, in two Sundays, starting with number six, we're going to be doing something called Rooted. Um, four weeks thing that's going to be happening on uh, in person during second service and then also online. Uh, this is something that we're going to be looking for our entire church body to participate in over the course of the next year. Um, a way for us is we kind of like there's a lot of new folks and like that have come since COVID and through the past couple of years. But even for folks that have been here, a chance for all of us to kind of recenter in our core values and who we are, who we have been, um, in the hopes of kind of setting us up for who we're going to be into the future as we faithfully follow God in this community. So uh, we're inviting you to be a part of Rooted. Uh, we'll be going through the history of HCA through our core values, through our emphasis on multi-ethnic um, community and how that's kind of evolved and played out over history. Uh, also talking about your spiritual giftings and the different things that are happening in the life of the church and how you get plugged in, in those if you haven't already. And I'm sure even if you're an old head and been here for a while, there might be things going on at the church that you don't know about. So um, we are inviting you all to be a part of that. You can sign up for Rooted online or you can sign up at the two desks here at the back of the sanctuary as well. Um, for each of those classes, the one that's happening on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. and online, uh, we're going to like hard cap the attendees at like 10 to 12. Um, and our plan is to do this like every other month. So we'll do it in November, we'll do it in January, March, May, and on and on. So uh, once it fills up, we'll kind of limit it that way. We want to really not just like convey information as a church staff, but also uh, learn about you and who you are and get to know you and hopefully better kind of help plug you into life here at HJ. Um, or just, you know, check in how you're doing again as one of those folks that have been plugged in here for a long time. So really this is something where we're calling on everybody hopefully to be a part of over the next year. Um, the sign up for that is going to start in two weeks. Second service and then Tuesday nights on Zoom. That is my plug. Uh, we're going to get into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, last Sunday, Hank did the first uh, half. Uh, this week in chapter 4, which is uh, a wonderful passage, one of my favorite in scripture talking about um, the unity of the body of Christ that we experience in the power of the Spirit as, we, as Jesus, you know, gifts us with His Spirit and, and unites us in that body that we are all growing and maturing in Christ together. And that was not the passage I was going to preach, so I'm going to stop preaching on it, but I love it. You should go back and read it. We're going to be starting at verse 17. I invite you to grab a Bible if you have it. Um, it'll be on the screen at first, but we're going to be parking in this passage for the entire morning, so you can just keep your Bible open to it, or uh, I'll even give you permission to pull out your phone and Google it if you need to. Not that you need my permission to do that, but if it helps you feel better, uh, getting your phone out. Um, so we're going to start at verse 17. Paul writing the Ephesians says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, and you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm going to read on a couple of verses that aren't on there. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we do praise you for, for paving the way for us, for showing us a, uh, a sacrifice of love for one another and for calling us into this reality. And I, I praise you as we gather as, as the family of God this morning um, for the mutual support that is found there and the mutual um, love and, and encouragement and challenge and all the things that come with being part of this body. I felt it already this morning in so many ways. And so we. In that reality, we come before you in worship. We come before you to hear a word from you, Lord. May we hear a word from you this morning in this day. May I get out of the way and ask for you to do that by the power of your Spirit. And may we have open hearts to uh, receive and open ears to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So, on the surface, at least, and this is my first uh, thought when I read this passage, Seems to be kind of one of those pretty standard, like, do better passages of Scripture, right? That we, we come across a lot. Um, a list of commands do this, don't do this, etc. But there's obviously a lot more to unpack in this, and, and we're going to do that this morning, of course. So this little, this little section of Scripture starts off with, I think in the NIV it's translated so, sometimes it'll be therefore. Um, I worked for a few years at a church in New Jersey a couple years ago, and the pastor. Whenever you would see the word therefore in one of Paul's letters or in the New Testament, well, mostly just in the letters, uh, he would say, and when we see therefore, we should ask, what's it? Oh, have you heard this before? Okay. And then you do a wave at the end of it? Okay. We didn't do that in Jersey, but in Harrisburg, it's how we roll. Okay. Uh, literally, at, like, like once every two or three weeks, we would do this. And it, it was, it's a little third grade. Uh, made the point, Craig, if you're watching, uh, where's the camera? Why are you watching? You should be working. Um, it's still in session. 15 minutes, buddy, but I love you. Um, it was a little third grade, but it got the point across, right? Uh, it's a bit, one very basic, good reading strategy for Scripture. When we see these, therefore, we can trust that Paul is 
very intentionally kind of constructing a, a, an argument. And, and when we read therefore, we should know that whatever comes after that is informed and in light of what came before it. Right? So we should have Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, this revolutionary, beautiful picture of the body of Christ bound together by the Spirit in unity. That should be in our minds as we read what follows. Good? Good. All right, we're one word in. Great start. We are on track to be done by Sunday Night Football. Um, so Paul goes on and says, So, therefore, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, which was a very weird thing for Paul to say in this letter because he is writing to mostly Gentiles, right? Probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but this is Asia Minor, so this is a predominantly Gentile uh, area and dominant culture. Um, even if his audience was mixed within the church, he says, hey, Gentiles, don't live like the Gentiles do anymore. I think what's happening here, as Paul does elsewhere in the New Testament, is he is, uh, he is reappropriating the word Gentile and kind of redefining and recontextualizing what exactly that means. So typically, Gentile would have meant, and this is, this is you know, first grade for some of us maybe, but uh, this Gentile would have meant anybody who is not Jewish, right? Um, Jewish, Gentile, these were, this dichotomy was an ethnic and a cultural and a religious dichotomy that was very well established by the time of Paul. But he is going to uh, redefine, he is going to reappropriate what exactly Gentile means in their thinking, as he does elsewhere in the New Testament. Who says that Gentiles are folks who are futile in their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the light of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. This would have been very typical way we talk about the Gentiles, right? The way we talk about them. You know, you know them, right? You know how we feel about them. At the time, them was defined along ethnic and cultural lines. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. Amen. Right? We're past that now. That was sarcasm. We didn't say that. It was sarcasm. We still do that all the time. But Paul, a lot of the New Testament, actually, uh, is about getting beyond that ethnic cultural dichotomy, getting beyond the us and them of that. And that's what he's doing here. He's still using Gentile language as they often would, but he means something different. Just like elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, a true Israelite, a true Jewish person is not someone who is an Israelite by blood, not a descendant of Abraham by blood, but by faith in Christ. Amen? That is what a true Israelite is. Now he's talking about Gentiles in this way. A true Gentile is not someone who is born here or there, a part of this or that culture, not the them that we tend to think of, but those who have darkened minds, hard hearts towards God, Jew or Gentile. And because of their darkened minds and their hard hearts, Paul says that having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. I was reflecting on this depiction of the writing sermon, I thought how sad and dark and, and ironic of a picture this is that he is painting, right? We have these people that have, have lost all sensitivity. They are blind to God. They are hard of heart. You can imagine a person that's like made of stone, right? They have no sensitivity, no feeling. And so what do they do? They give themselves over to sensuality and impurity and, and greed. Desperate. 
we may have experienced times in our life, or we may know someone who has, maybe someone doing this right now, who have been driven to a, a destructive practice out of a desire to just feel something, right? That's kind of the picture we have here. You know, we might deal with depression. Throughout my life, I have dealt with depression. So I can be familiar with this sense of kind of coldness, this, this stone feeling, this, this loss of sensitivity. And how often we try to remedy that by, by, by grasping for any kind of pleasure or gratification of our desires just to feel better, just to feel something, right? That's the condition of the Gentiles that he is describing here. It's a bleak picture. It's an ironic picture. The more insensate they become, the more they go after sensuality and greed and these different things. The person who's lost all feel, who's separated from the life of God, is still somewhere in their soul, is desperate for that life, that thing. But Paul says that that, however, is not the way of life that you were in when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth. He describes it as a way of life. So in this new dichotomy that Paul is setting up, it's not Jew or Gentile, it's not between two different ethnicities or two different cultures, but between two ways of life. Amen? Brothers and sisters, that is, that's the deal. That's what we are invited into this morning. Not a new tribal or ethnic identity. Not a new set of cultural markers or language. Not even a new system of belief, right? A new way of life. Liberation and freedom and an abundant life in Jesus. An invitation to depart from the old Gentile way of life, the stony, darkened, isolated life which is corrupted by deceitful desires, as he says in verse 22. Deceitful desires. Think about that phrase for a second. The stone person gives himself over to all kinds of sensuality and greed just to feel something desperate for it, and they realize what? That it is a lie. That the desire is deceitful. We have all experienced that, right? No sooner do we have what we were looking for than we realize it doesn't fill the hole. And actually, as Paul says, it makes things worse. It corrupts. Our deceitful desires corrupt. They make us more dependent. They make us more addicted. They make us more tolerant. This is a cheery sermon we have this morning. And then who asked this guy to come up and preach? Amen. Deceitful desires. And I know I'm describing a lot of us and the experiences that we've had when I say that this morning. Whether you count yourself as a follower of Jesus or you feel like you're standing on the fringes or all the way out, you know that feeling. Or you've known that feeling. What it feels like to, to have a heart of stone. And, and you probably know that those desires are the people. You probably know that, that everything that you're grasping ever just after trying to feel something like that, those things are a lie. Well, in the midst of this passage, Paul brings up the good news that Jesus is inviting you into a new way of life. And he's inviting all of us. Not just those who don't follow Jesus, right? Remember, who is this letter written to? This letter is written to the church. This letter is written to good church folk like y'all. Amen. And hey, y'all, who show up faithfully every single Sunday, right? Or 1.7 Sundays per month on a national average. Y'all, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. 
you must take hold of this new life that you've been offered, that you've been called to live in. He's writing to all of us to, to lay down a heart of stone and have a, a heart of flesh and blood to embrace this new way of life. A heart that is shaped after God's own heart. You are always meant for more. To be, in Paul's words, made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on the new self, to be created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? So what exactly does this new way of life look like? This new non-Gentile Jesus way of life. That's what the rest of the passage from verse 25 and on is going to describe to you. It's going to lay out. There's another therefore. So don't live like the Gentiles do. And there's another therefore in this list of prescriptions. And I'm going to read verses 25 and 32 again. Because at first glance, like I said to you, uh, it seems like another list of Bible do's and don'ts, right? Just like Paul kind of, you know, smatters throughout his letters. But I think there's a more specific emphasis that's going on here. So I'm going to read these again. I'm going to ask you to think and listen. You know, what, what binds these commands? What, what, what's the common thread here, if anything? And don't worry, I'll give you the answer as soon as I'm done. So, but try. Just try. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you, y'all, were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, you walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what do all these commands have in common? And I gave it away a little bit when I did a on-the-fly translation into the y'all, which is the proper way to translate that. We'll get into that in a second. Um, all these commands have to do with the one another, right? All of these commands have to do with how we are treating each other in the body, right? Verse 25 lays out very clearly. He says, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You know, there are other vice lists and, and command lists throughout the letters that are more individually focused than this one, but this one is, is particularly and purely about how we are treating one another, how we are living within the body. The new way of life in Jesus, among other things, means being a part of this body. Remember that therefore we started with coming out of the one body at the beginning uh, of chapter 4. To put off the Gentile way of life and embrace this new way of life where you don't lie to one another, where you don't dwell in your anger, where you don't feel, where you don't speak badly of one another, etc. Because, because those things, those things hurt others. And that might sound really super basic to you. And you're like, yeah, of course. And I hope that's true, but, but I want to hammer into it a little bit because this runs up against one of the great idols of our culture, of our contemporary Western culture, which is individualism. That before everything and anything else, I am an individual. And my birthright as a human and as an American is to do whatever I want. Amen? Don't amend that. 
Don't even know. I'm not even going to try to tap I can be whoever and however I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Is the doctrine of our time. And actually, that hurting other people part is pretty negotiable if you have the power to get away with it, right? Individualism is one of our idols. Not that being an individual or placing an importance on the individual is a bad thing. It's not. It's a good thing. Right? The Bible moves in that direction over time. There will come a time when you will not be held accountable for the sins of your fathers and your forefathers, but for your own sins. And we affirm the scripture that you, each and every one of you, is a beloved, created, unique individual, loved by God in and of yourself. You celebrate the individual, and being an individual is fine, but embracing individualism is idolatry. Is a departure from the way of life we're called to in Christ. Pastor Tim Keller describes it this way. He describes idolatry in general this way. He said, idolatry is when we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. So he's a really helpful way to think of that. There's so many things as well that are, that are good things when we put that on that pedestal. That's when we get into trouble. And that's what we've done. We've taken the individual, we've made it everything. We are self-determining individuals who can do and say and be whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And maybe that's what it's like in the Gentile world, but that's not what we were called to. You know, the total supremacy of the individual, that might work in the Gentile world. I don't think it's working. It might. But it definitely does not work in the body of Christ. And we are caught out of that and away from that. And of course that's how it works, right? Well, we are a body. We are interconnected completely and totally. We have, to, we have to let go of the individualism, that idol that our culture has, and newly realize that what we do and, and how we live affects the rest of the body in fundamental ways. You know, think how quickly does the whole body fail when one little organ gets out, when one tiny infection gets in? It's like that. 99.9% you can do is find that that one thing. What we do and how we live affects the rest of the body. And if the body metaphor doesn't work for you, I'll give you another metaphor. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Near Christianity, uses the illustration of a fleet of ships that is sailing in one direction. Um, these are all individual ships. They've got their own captains. They've got their own... Uh, rudders and sails and other things that are found on ships. Um, they are charting their own course, etc., or whatever. They have their own heading. You know, you get the idea. You imagine yourself. You're captaining one of these ships, and you're right in the middle of this formation. You've got ships to the right of you. You've got ships to the left of you. You've got ships ahead of you, ships behind you. Now, you could cut a hard left turn out of nowhere if you wanted to, you as an individual are free to do that, but there are going to be drastic consequences. This was just trying to lay out, you know, how morality works in the church and whatever we might think, <laughs> we are not islands. In fact, is, uh, we are the body of Christ. We get this therefore that leads to all these one another things where we realize that the way of Jesus. It's not about thinking only of ourselves, but thinking with others 
in mind. We do not simply live abuse and don't simply call it a new way of life, a new task of mind, a new posture where we think first about others rather than ourselves. You are living connected to and with a body. So, speak truthfully. So, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. I don't know about you, I praise God that uh, there these verses in Scripture because it assumes, like, you're going to get angry, right? That anger itself is not a sin, necessarily. You know, that God, that in, in, in Paul here, is honoring those emotions and, and realizing that we are going to experience that. Anger is not a sin, but, but when is it a sin? It's a sin when the sun goes down on you and you allow it to persist. Like, you're allowed to be angry. You know, people are going to cut you off in traffic. Co-workers or fellow students are going to let you take the blame or just make you do the whole group project by yourself. Tom Brady's going to win seven Super Bowls. He just... Not, not yet. He's just not in anything that either. We live in a fallen world and we're going we're gonna to have plenty of reasons to be angry. Tom Brady's chief among them. But... Yeah, I'll go the safe one. Um... But in your anger, do not sin. When the sun goes down on your anger, that's the qualifying thing. I think, uh, you know, I think that's what Paul means when he quotes that. He says, quotes like, you know, in your anger, do not sin. What he means is don't let the sun go down on it. Don't let it go unresolved. When we are not faithful to address the cause of our anger and resolve it, and in the context of the body, this means being faithful to quickly and directly talk with and when I say directly, I mean in a loving way, um, with the source of our anger, with the other member of the body that is contributing to that anger, if that's the context we're coming to. It would be a revolutionary practice if we were faithful to just, like, not wait, let go. You know, Jesus commands us to do this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you are going to the altar to bring your offering, and you remember that someone has something against you, drop your offering, and go be reconciled to that person. Jesus saying, God is saying to you, I don't want to save your worship until you have been reconciled to that person. You need to be at one in the body first. If we as people were faithful in this church community, it's not like the sun to go down on our anger. This goes beyond like, don't go to bed angry, which we hear a lot with our spouses. That's also good practice. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed angry with your church family. Call them, figure it out. It's going to go to voicemail for me, but we'll talk in the morning. You know, it'll be fine. It still counts. You got it off your chest. Because when we allow that anger to fester, we go hard hearted, we get isolated, and as he says, the devil gets a foothold in our church community. Because anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Notice he doesn't stop with thou shalt not steal, right? He doesn't just reiterate the command, but tells them in the positive sense what they can do to build others up. This isn't just about you doing ethical maintenance on yourself, but about reordering your thinking, reordering your way of life. Where it's not so much that I'm obsessed with my moral report card and like I better not steal, but I'm thinking, no, how can I help others? How can I bless others? How can I produce for others? around me. That was the attitude of the early church. That's called to be the attitude of the church now, where they were so uh, 
concerns for the welfare of each other, that nobody had too much, nobody had too little. They were always looking outward in that way. There's this community of upbuilding with their, with their money, with their things. and resources are oriented towards others? How many of our prayers are oriented towards others? How much of your prayer life is not, not for me, 95% of my prayer life is devoted to me frantically issuing prayers for myself. Honestly, frantically, the, um, it's underselling. Just please, Lord, please. Just all day. Um, how many of our prayers are oriented towards other people? I'm in a text thread with a couple guys here that I won't call out. Um, and one of them had an awesome idea to, uh, he said, let's try this for a week. And we're going on like six weeks of that first week now. Uh, for a week, let's try not praying for ourselves at all, and instead praying for one another. So whatever you would have prayed or prayed for yourself today, put it in the text thread, and then everybody else uh, will pray for you instead. And you pray for the others in the thread. It's a really cool idea. Um, and honestly, I think it did make a difference. But whether it did or not, it taught me something of what it means to live in the body. It taught me how interconnected we are. And I had to walk in trusting these other people to hold me up in prayer. And hopefully practically plead out to God for intervention every ten minutes of my life. Um, it taught me something. Paul, Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to the need that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk. I don't know about you, but I definitely grew up understanding unwholesome talk to just mean cursing or swearing. I don't know if that's anyone else's understanding of that. Uh, and while I'm not going to use the pulpit to make a case for cursing, I will say, if you hear, if you hear that, that's on you, um, I will say that that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. Not at all. The fact is, actually, I think church people can be really uh, guilty of hypocrisy on this and bad biblical interpretation on this, heavily monitoring curse words, but not gossip, not just like thoughtless words about other people in the church community. Growing up in the church, I knew plenty of older folks who would scowl at me and when I would say, like, the word fart, for example. Even now, a lot of us are like, I don't know if you should say that in the that was super weird. Felt unwholesome. I get it. I'm kind of with you. But if I would say that, let alone any other words starting with that letter, you know, they would just scowl at me or maybe like rap me on the back of the head or something. It was just, it was the 90s, you know. I mean, it was the 90s. It takes a village to get these kids talking right. Amen. But these older folks, you know, who were carefully guarding my uh, speech as it relates to curse words, I don't remember them ever saying a kind word to me. Or about anybody else. You know? I say they would scowl at me when I would say those words, but I just remember them scowling pretty much all the time. That's, that's not how we should understand unwholesome talk, right? Unwholesome talk is, is words that tear others down or neglect to build them up, whether to their face or behind their back or in the hearing of others. You know, our words are meant to build each other up. Words brought the world into existence. Words can, can build up the body or words can destroy it. So it matters what you say. 
about others, and especially about others in the church where you're so interconnected in this body. Even if they don't hear you, even if you're totally confident it's never going to get back to them, you are hurting the body when you do that. I am hurting the body when I do that. When we complain, when we gossip, when we derive, rather than talking to one another directly and with love, we are slowly tearing away at the fabric of what God is weaving together here. And when we do that, and as verse 30 says, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom y'all were sealed for the day of redemption. This is where the English translation just always fails us. So the doesn't translate that second person plural as y'all. We just get you, because I don't know, English, I guess. But in the Greek, it is very clearly y'all. Many of the times in the New Testament, when you read you, it is y'all, and that makes a huge difference. And no wonder we are such individualists, because we're too, uh, I don't know, prejudiced against other folks to like put y'all in our Bibles. But I think we should, we should get into it and start doing it. We need to. We get yins. Any Western PA folks? Any yins or something here? I mean, I don't care. You guys? I, no? Y'all and yins? All right. I don't I didn't feel good about it when I said it, but. But the text should say, do not, through your feeling and anger and unwholesome talk, grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom y'all were sealed for the day of redemption. Think about that. For the day of redemption, we're talking salvation, we're talking, talking the day of the Lord. The day of resurrection, when we will stand before Him. Y'all, His bride, were sealed for the day of redemption. That is a humbling thought. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is doing something miraculous in your midst? Did you know that the church is a literal miracle born of the Spirit animating us? A body of many different members animated by the Spirit of Jesus growing up into the head who is Christ. So when we answer the invitation into this new way of life, we are signing up to be a part of that reality, to be sealed for the day of redemption with us. And when we act like individuals, when we act like just sailing all alone, concerned with our own people, desires instead of the good of those around us, we grieve the Holy Spirit that brought us together. This happens to all about getting our heads into this new reality. Shifting that paradigm away from me to us. It's a simple shift, but it is utterly important. Lest we grieve the Holy Spirit at work in us. So Paul says we should get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling. No, I've seen y'all brawling. Cut it out with the brawling. Take it across the street. <laughs> or don't take it across the street. Maybe just don't brawl. Um, get rid of all slander and every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The new way of life, the way of love, is the trail that Jesus blazed by forsaking his individuality, his self-determination, instead serving and dying for us. Philippians 2, 5-11 is a passage I could preach on every single Sunday morning. It says, In God, in, in the very nature of God, He did not count that as something to be clung to, but became in His very nature, in essence, a servant. 
who, if not the God of the universe, has a right to be an individual? And yet, he who, of all people, need not be tethered with responsibility to others, tethers himself to all. Amen? Existed from all time as this three in one community, loving and submitting to that first one another and inviting us in to that divine dance, inviting us in to that holy community that has existed from all time, always and forever, before there was anything. There was loving community. There was thoughtless sacrifice. There was outward faithfulness. He invites us out of the Gentile way of life, our minds and our hearts darkened and hardened by sin, and he invites us out of that crippling and corrupting self-interest that is slowly killing us and into the way of love. Into that life in the Trinity. A life where we weigh out our actions and words according to whether or not they're going to build each other up, whether or not they're going to support our brothers and sisters. And vice versa, too. We can also receive that from others. The lie is that if we give up looking after ourselves, nobody else is going to do it. And our life will fall apart. Maybe that is true for the the quote-unquote Gentiles, but it should not be so with you all. And if it is, shame on us, right? You have been invited into more, into a body to test and provide, but also into a body that supports and sustains. You are invited to hold others up, and you are invited to be held up. I've been held up this morning by the body. I'm not, I know we're all coming from a lot of different places, and I'm not coming from a place of, like, uh, joy and happiness. And I've been held up by the body. I've been reminded, like, I'm just like a, a, a mouse or a tooth or a tongue, whatever. I don't know. Let's not get into the physiology of it. Um, I am being held up. You are being held up. You can trust in the context of this community that you you don't need to be desperately cling to looking after yourself. Let yourself be looked after. And after all, we've seen what self-interest in looking after yourself gets us anyway, right? So we have two ways before us. What kind of church are we going to be? going to take the accumulation of many small, conscious decisions on our part. Paul calls us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit earlier in Ephesians 4. We can do our part to try, each of us and all of us. But we should also come back to the place that we should always come back to, which is reliance on God, reliance on the power of the Spirit to do this. Right? This seal that we have been stamped with for the day of redemption, it's not just like some kind of fragile, um, passive thing where it's like, here's the Holy Spirit, like, don't drop it, don't break it, be careful. It is like, it's the presence of the living God, right? It is this active miracle, this power in our midst that's shaping us and binding us together. So as much as we listen to the sermon, as much as we listen to what we are called to do in Christ and called to try and be in Christ, we simply also yield to the power of the Spirit that is already at work, and we say, come Lord Jesus, work Holy Spirit in this body. Amen? We ask for that, we pray for that, we plead for that. Give us eyes to see that your Spirit is work. Say your Spirit is, your Spirit is what is doing this. Assuring the preaching is doing this. Amen? It is your Spirit. 
alive in each and every one of us. That is what we are called into, Lord, save us. Let your power work through our obedience. Let your mercy work out in our hard-heartedness. I invite the worship team to come up and any pastors that are in the room to come up to the front. Um, if you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Uh, the worship team is going to sing the song, um, Lord, I need you. And I think that's going to end us exactly where we stood at, right? In reliance on God. As we ask, make, us, make this true of us, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. We want to love each other well, even when our natures are pulling us in the other direction. Even when we feel our heart hardening, Lord, soften our hearts. Lord, make this true of us. We need you. Let's sing it again.